episode 305, the 1% most expensive claimants racking up massive FFS bills and still not getting the help they need from our healthcare system. My guest today is Daryl Moon, CEO of Orient. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. My guest today is Daryl Moon, who is the CEO over at Orient. I was super intrigued by some of the work that Daryl and his team are doing regarding high-cost claimants. Said a different and probably better way, certain people in need of care were identified because they were costing so much. Year after year after year, these individuals, I call them hyper-users during this episode, but it's possible I made that term up myself. These hyper-users were getting all kinds of expensive health care, while at the same time, they were not getting any better. So Daryl and his team realized that something was afoot here, and it turned out to be a combination of maybe loneliness, maybe low self-esteem, and low self-efficacy. And no matter how many times you go to the cardiologist or the rheumatologist or the pulmonologist, none of those things will be cured. In fact, when someone's identity becomes their myriad of health issues, they have a sort of perverse incentive, if you think about it, not to follow any of their doctor's recommendations to, you know, take meds or make lifestyle changes. So while their underlying condition, low self-esteem, low self-efficacy remains untreated, their physical health tends to actually get worse, not better, despite all the medical attention. What's necessary to help this type of patient is the best that behavioral science has to offer. A nuance I found really interesting and important in the work that Daryl is doing is that it's pretty easy to identify a hyper-user from someone with a horrid chronic condition simply requiring a lot of care. The hyper-users will respond and appreciate the extra attention that a behavioral health coach slash program has to offer. In contrast, those with other ailments will just merely get annoyed, usually on the quick, so they exclude themselves from the program. Sidebar, my guest today, Daryl Moon, is organizing an aspirational healthcare conference for July 14th and 15th, 2020. In that virtual meeting, the intent will be to highlight South Central Foundation's NUCA system of care in Alaska and other similar healthcare models that achieve much better healthcare outcomes at like half the cost. So check that out if you are so inclined. Thanks so much also to Lee Lewis from the HTA for the introduction to Daryl and Orion. My name is Stacey Richter. This podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Daryl Moon, welcome to Relentless Health Value. Thank you. When you ask employers, meaning these CEOs, the question, what do you want out of the healthcare system? In your experience, you know, talking to the thousands of CEOs that you've spoken with, what do they tend to say? Well, the first thing they say is, I'm the customer. I have a say. <laughs> they look at me like, I don't get to say what I want. And I go, yeah, no, you are the one who writes the checks. You really are the customer. So think about it for a minute. You know, what do you want as the customer? What is it that would delight you for all the money you spent? It's often your second or third largest cost of doing business. And when they get to thinking about it, they go, well, first and foremost, I want to attract and retain good employees. No question. Number one thing that they always say. 
And then they say, well, I want a healthy, productive workforce because my product or my service that goes out the door to my customers is directly tied to the health and productivity of my workforce. And I want my employees to be satisfied with the healthcare system. I want them to feel like it's good quality. They get the need, you know, they get the services that they need. And then the fourth thing they always say is, I don't want it to cost so much. That's what they tell me they want. Knowing that these are the four things that employer CEOs care about, there are any number, you know, look across the healthcare landscape, there are any number of health tech service vendors, providers, suppliers who are looking to help employers get to those four, maybe not quite as well-defined aspirations, especially the last one, the don't cost too much aspiration. And I think that when people start thinking about the don't cost too much, everybody's eye immediately turns to the high cost claimants. What's your feeling on that as an approach? Is it a good one to be focusing on high cost claimants? I think there's value in that. I think there's no question that if a small group of people are spending a lot of the money, it does make sense to focus on that group and and try to help that group be wiser about how they use healthcare and what they need it for. A lot of times as you're doing that, you're focusing on those who have already fallen off the cliff. So I think there's value in both putting fences at the top of the cliff, as well as for those who often fall off (laughs) or just to keep people falling off in the first place. And your experience, you know, these, I'm using the term and I'm making air quotes because it's awesome for podcasts to make air quotes. If we are talking about high cost claimants, you know, maybe we're talking about the top five to 10 of any given health plans population or employers, employee member population. What typically is the percentage that these high cost claimants use? Well, it depends on who you look at. I mean, there's clearly, you know, a small 5 to 10% of the group that spends the majority of the healthcare costs in any given year. I like to focus on the group that stays in that because unfortunately, well, not unfortunately, but fortunately, many of those who fall into that category are not in that category the next year or two or three years out. They're no longer there. They're laser claims or high cost claimants, but they're not there year after year. So I like to focus on the ones that are there that just keep coming back into that group year after year after year. I, you know, I think you said something which many people don't realize right there. So I just want to, you know, highlight this point. There are a lot of programs that are out there that focus on, you know, let's focus on everybody that's, you know, high risk or whose claims added up to a hefty sum this year. But one of the issues there is that exactly like you just said, if most of the high cost claimants one year are not the high cost claimants the next year, there's all kinds of math machinations that have been done to say, oh, you know, all of these high cost claimants the following year were were cheap. So as a supplier, I really helped you, employer. When in fact, it was really just a regression to the mean. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, a regression to the mean. What you did is you went through and you picked out, okay, who are the people, you actually made a challenge for yourself, who are the people who year over year wind up in that high cost claimant pool? Exactly. And who are those people? As we would do the claims analysis and write, okay, who falls into this category year after year, after t- you know five years, who stays in that group? They're not necessarily the really high laser claimants. They're people who often have fallen victim to their illnesses and often many illnesses. Generally, they've seen a decrease in their self-efficacy and now their world revolves around the attention they get from the healthcare system. 
that's the group that really you have to get to the crux of the problem, which is the fact that they become a victim of their diseases and they, and they look to the healthcare system for attention. And quite honestly, they don't necessarily want to get better, or at least they don't want to lose that identity. And the only way to really help them is to help them build that self-esteem, that self-efficacy that they've lost that has diminished. And because it's diminished, then they become, like I said, kind of a victim to the healthcare system. So if you go through and you look at the year over year over year people, what percentage of them are in the group that you're specifying? And I'm not sure what we call that group. Hyper users? They're really just about 1% of the population that year after year represent 10 to 15% of the total costs. And they just keep, I call it churning. They just keep ending up in that group year after year. So about 1%. And how do you determine like who is a hyper user as we're defining them or somebody who has some horrid condition, disease that just simply requires a lot of resources? Claims analysis is the best way, just basically taking claims and looking back for over five years and saying, okay, who are these people who fall into this group? And then let's take a look at their conditions and why are they using the healthcare system and what is it for? And there's going to be a few of those people who just have a really horrid condition that, you know, due to that condition, they're going to be high users of the healthcare system, not out of a lack of self-esteem or self-efficacy because of the condition itself. Then there's a large percentage of those people who are, they're just high users of all kinds of healthcare and they have often many different chronic conditions, COPD and diabetes and Often a lot of mental health, depression, and fibromyalgia is a common condition amongst this group. There's lots of conditions that kind of come together to create this very challenging patient. Then it often has become their claim to fame, their identities built around the fact that they go to the doctor and their latest, you know, when you talk to them, it's about their latest condition or their latest diagnosis. And so the challenge there is that you get somebody whose identity is being built around going to the doctor. So they're going to one specialist after another, largely racking up huge bills that don't necessarily, they're a symptom of an issue, not solving for anything. Exactly. And when you approach them and say, let's try to get you to take your medicine more regularly, or let's try to get you to stay on the treatment plan that the doctor's given you, you're actually confronting their identity. And so that's not where they're going to begin to work on on trying to make changes. You, You have to really apply best behavioral science in building self-esteem and self-efficacy. And that really just boils down to basics of helping the person overcome the challenges that are most important to them. And what we've discovered is it's often not taking their medicine or being more active or eating better. In fact, you kind of have to start wherever, whatever their battle that they want to address. So say you've identified somebody who likely falls into this category. Mm-hmm. What do you do? Okay, so you reach out to them for the very first time. How does that conversation go? Well, generally, one of the reasons we know we have someone that falls into this category is they like the attention of the healthcare system. And so by reaching out and offering them the support, and you know, it's clear that you have to build trust and you have to build a rapport. And so it's giving them confidence that you're not there to shame, you're not there to blame, You're not there to make them feel guilty. And they usually like that attention. Now, that's easy. That's, you know, getting that person to have a regular relationship with someone isn't the hard part. The hard part is then helping them to build their self-esteem. 
And you found that once someone builds up their self-esteem, that actually they become a less high-cost claimant. There's no question. They move through a low level of self-esteem to where they begin to no longer just be a sick patient and their identity isn't just built around their the attention they need from the healthcare system, but in more healthy ways. They be, you know, they become to they start to manage their conditions. They don't become all of a sudden, you know, they don't overcome all their chronic conditions overnight, but they become they, they're able to better manage them because their self-efficacy has grown. And is the is it also part of this that, you know, they're not making an appointment with a, you know, cardiac surgeon who's going to charge however many thousand dollars for that office visit and instead are getting attention from, let's just say, someone who's a bit lower cost and maybe specially trained to help someone improve their self-esteem. So they're not misdirecting the, the going to the wrong Correct. place. There's no question that, you know, by giving them a lot of attention from like a health coach who's trained in behavior and, you know, builds rapport and helps them feel cared about and that is willing to listen to them can take a lot of burden off the expensive healthcare system. But again, that doesn't, you know, just listening to someone that builds relationship and the relationship then allows the coach or the interventionist to come to understand what's the battle that that patient is really most interested in winning within themselves. That's the key to building self-esteem is helping people accomplish what's most important to them. And we rarely start with things that are healthcare related. Like what are some examples of battles that you've helped someone overcome and in response, someone who used to be a high consumer of healthcare started to become less so? One example is a gentleman who, after building that relationship of trust, shared with their coach that they really wanted to get through all of the EOBs that had piled up on their dining room table and quite honestly had completely covered the dining room table. Now, it didn't happen overnight. It was a very slow, gradual process. But with the support of that coach who was calling regularly and taking that project that was interesting to the person to accomplish by small and gradual steps and breaking it into very small pieces, eventually over a few months, that person was able to go through all of those letters on the table and get through that. And that, because they were successful in reaching a goal that they had set for themselves, begins to build self-esteem. And then the goal became to clean out under the bathroom sinks. So neither one of those had anything to do with their conditions, but it had everything to do with building self-esteem. So just kind of following the thread here. Okay, so now I've achieved some small successes. So I haven't been taking my medicine because of my lack of self-esteem or motivation, or maybe I like to go to the doctor and and if I take my medicine, then I won't have a reason to. You know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. how do we more c- closely, maybe I'm trying to be too logical about this and, and it's it's emotional, you know what I'm saying? But like, how can we connect the dots? Like, okay, so I've attained these successes what am I now more likely to do or not do as a result of me feeling good about myself? Well, as that self-efficacy grows, you move out of that victim state of mind. And that's really what it is, is helping a person to not see themselves as a victim of all of their health conditions, but rather someone who can manage those. And so they begin to more effectively manage it because they're now, they're beginning to lose some of that need for attention from the system. Self-efficacy is the root of almost all behavioral science. And whenever you're trying to help people change behavior, whether it's to do something you want them to do or even helping them accomplish the things they want to you, building self-efficacy is at the heart of that. 
you know, there's a direct line to from I got help from my coach. And I'm assuming that what you're recommending here is that each individual gets hooked up with a health coach and the health coach calls like how often? One to three times a week or once a month? Yeah, it's it's often a two or three phone call a week conversation and relationship. So they're talking two to three times a week with this health coach. I'm feeling like there's a loneliness factor here. Like I know just thinking of everybody had a grandma who went to the doctor, you know, like you look at her social calendar and she's talking about that nice young man, Dr. Bernanke, you know, like Mm -hmm. it's very clear that she's not going to Dr. Bernanke to strictly for a stress test, which she probably didn't need anyway. She's probably going to Dr. Bernanke because she likes the attention of the nice young man. Is that a factor here in a way too, that by gaining social connections, you know, we are all social creatures, we humans, there becomes less of a need. Like you can put that on your calendar as opposed to a very, very highly priced ologist. Yes. And if if you think about it, because these people have become very much a victim of their conditions, and that's what they want to talk about, sometimes family and friends become somewhat distant and they become more isolated because They get tired of hearing the complaints and the concerns and the pains and all the misfortunes when in fact they can see that the person is not doing what will help them to get better. And so sometimes that creates an isolation. So the fact that they've got someone who's calling, who's not shaming, not blaming, just building rapport and helping them wherever they feel like they want to make the change is a great support and takes care of some of that social need that the healthcare system often winds up playing. What kind of training do these coaches have? You know, it sounds like they have to be somebody who is a really good listener, but it also sounds like there's some specific tenets that they would have to adhere to, you know, i.e. not shaming or blaming, but, you know, like what kind of training would you need? Well, first and foremost, it's often less the training and the very personality of the person. It's like a good therapist. A good therapist isn't often a really great therapist because they went to school and had years and years of training and hours of experience, but because they had the kind of personality that could connect well with people and and create that relationship of trust where people are willing to open up. Finding a person who has that kind of personality is critical. And then obviously continuing to train them in motivational interviewing and empathetic listening and all those characteristics of a good behavioralist those are important to continue and to monitor and to listen for, you know, but it's more that the person has the personality that would make a really good therapist than it is the fact that they went to a particular program or had a certificate from a particular organization. We've been talking about how unequivocally, it sounds like, if you take these 1% of claimants and you put them in a program like this, that their hyper-utilization of the healthcare system reduces and costs go down accordingly. Do their outcomes also go up? If you're spending the time and effort with these people, I mean, it sounds like they certainly feel better. And, and I don't want to dismiss this as, a, as an outcome. But also, does their COPD improve? Yes, because they begin to manage it. Remember, one of the reasons that they're struggling is because they're not appropriately managed. They're not following the treatment plan. As they begin to better manage their condition, their conditions improve. Not that they become completely eradicated, but they're better managing those conditions. It's been so true. I remember learning this 25 years ago, that if you want to identify future claims, ask people two questions. One, tell me about your health. And if they describe their health as not good, 
that's a huge indicator that they're going to have future. And then the other one is, tell me about your social experience, you know, and your, and if they're a lonely person, you know, the fact that they don't feel good about their health and they're a lonely person are the two best indicators and predictors of future healthcare costs. I never really contemplated one of the things that you were talking about. If somebody is gaining their identity from being ill, they might not be taking their COPD drugs Exactly what you said at the top of this conversation, it may not be necessarily their goal to become healthy. Right. And therein lies the problem. So you can't address it by, I love the analogy that I heard recently from an expert in this area who said, you know, healthcare, there's a certain amount of healthcare where the healthcare system has control. For example, a person who winds up in the emergency room and is comatose, the healthcare system's in entire control of the outcome of that patient because they're going to do something to that patient. But that only represents about 20% of healthcare. And, and so the analogy is if you're throwing a rock at a target and that's the goal is to hit the target, and so you keep throwing the rock, you're going to get really good about hitting that target every time. So you can, in an emergency room, figure out what you need to do to help this person who's in this condition. You know, let's do the following things that work well. Well, the other 80% of healthcare isn't like throwing a rock. It's like throwing a live bird. And if you throw that live bird at the target, it's not going to go to the target. It's going to fly wherever that bird wants to go. As Dr. Douglas Eby, who uses this analogy and who I heard it from, says, you have to influence the bird because the bird has more control than the healthcare system. Well, that's the case in these people. They're in control of their health. They're the customer owner of their own health. And so trying to get them to do what you want them to do is like throwing a rock at a target. Well, it's not a rock. It's a bird. It's a live bird that has their own choices of what to do, and they're going to fly where they want to fly. If we want to address 80% of healthcare, we can't just throw rocks at targets. And that's what we do often in the healthcare system is we focus on the best treatment plan, or we focus on the best diagnosis of the problem, but we don't do a great job of engaging and influencing the person and their behavior. And, and clearly, in probably the group that it's most apparent is in this 1% of the population, who have fallen victim to their conditions. So you work with many employers who recognize exactly what you're talking about and are willing to take action because, as we talked about at the top of this conversation, you know, they want to attract and retain good employees, They or maybe more specifically, they need employees to be healthy and then also to control costs. Beyond employers... Who else has a vested interest or who should have a vested interest in what we're talking about right now? Like, have you seen other stakeholders? You know, because if we're talking about fee-for-service, obviously there's a perverse incentive to, you know, take my grandma's appointment, right? You know, if you look at who buys healthcare, you know, who's truly the customer that's willing to pay the check? It's the government and its employers. And the government, I will say that Although there's been lots of bad choices, I think the whole idea of chronic care management, you know, CCM, Medicare pays doctors to manage chronic conditions. And it's only happened in the last few years, but it's a great example of the, one of the largest payers saying, instead of just waiting for someone to show up with a symptom and pay doctors to treat the symptom, let's actually pay the doctors and their treatment teams to stay in touch with that chronically ill patient and actually help them manage their chronic condition on an ongoing basis. And I think it's a great example of, of moving in the right direction. And, and some innovative health plans have begun to do the same. Uh, Medicare was kind of the lead in really chronic care management and being willing to pay. I believe there's still a long ways they can go on how they do it, but I think it's a great example of the largest 
buyer trying to put a fence at the top of the cliff. Let's not just wait till the person falls off. Another one is the pre-diabetic program that the Medicare program is now paying for. You know, pre-diabetes, let's avoid someone from becoming diabetic by actually paying to manage pre-diabetes. Another great example of a large buyer who's not an employer who's doing some things to put fences at the top of the cliff. Talk about your companies. And I say companies, Orion, obviously being maybe the centerpiece, but you've got a lot of stuff going on. We do. So Orion is a population behavior change company. So it's about getting lots of people engaged in complex behavior changes because that is the root of about 90% of everything we spend in healthcare. So it's how do you help not just the 1%, but everybody? How do you help people make complex behavior changes? Another company of mine is, is a company that manages population mental health. And it does it from the standpoint of let's not change or increase the rates every year. Let's make money on keeping people healthy. And, and the key is early intervention. In fact, we're launching a product now called Resilience Pro, which is taking the best practices of both of those programs and really helping to better manage in a proactive way mental health within populations, as well as help change behavior to drive better health. Another thing we have going on is we began a movement back at the beginning of the pandemic called Going On Offense. And it's goingonoffense.com. And it's really applying best practices of helping people be resilient. I've done a lot of Things brought a lot of resources and, and, and ideas together to help organizations and individuals deal with the emotional challenges of the pandemic. So those are just some of the things that we're doing. So let me ask you this. How do you, we've had a bunch of guests lately talk about the importance of having a longitudinal patient, you know, data as well as experience. How do you, if you work with local providers? So like, for example, the patient who has their pulmonologist for their COPD and their endocrinologist and their PCP. How do you either aspirationally or right now, or do you even need to work with those providers? Well, and I often said that's one of the challenges we have in our current system is there's too many silos. Probably the most effective healthcare system in the globe that the world is a system called the NUCA system of care in Alaska. And what did they do? Well, they simply applied continuous quality improvement ask the customer what they wanted and build a system around that. And they've created a massively powerful primary care system that focuses on behavioral change. So instead of saying, I'm going to send you to a specialist, they bring the specialist into the conversation. And that's a conversation with a team of providers who know the patient well, have a very longitudinal experience with the patient, and they bring in the various specialists into that case whether it's a hospitalist because there's a hospital involved or because it might be a cardiologist with a heart problem, they don't simply send the patient out. Here, here's a name of three or four cardiologists, go see one. No, they actually coordinate the care and bring that specialist into that primary care setting where there's a deep long-term relationship with the patient. So it sounds like in your ideal world, the work that you're doing at Orion with the population health, with what we just talked about with the hyper users or the low self-esteem crowd, all that would be run through the APC? Like, how do all these parts fit together in your ideal world? The ideal environment is to have a massively powerful primary care team made up of not just one person, but made up of a physician, a case manager, a medical assistant, a nutritionist, a behavioralist, a health coach, you know, that can be that behavioralist, even perhaps a mental health worker, a pharmacist, 
And that team works in a coordinated way for the benefit of the patient. And they all understand that they're throwing a bird at the target. And having an influence on that person and what they do and how they behave is more important than getting the diagnosis right. The employer would be working with that advanced primary care practice that was really helping manage, take care of your physiology, but then also all of the behavioral wraparounds, the wings of the bird, so to speak. Correct. Yeah, when I get in front of CEOs, I teach them how, you know, they often... They want to just buy a product. And unfortunately, the product that they buy, which is a medical insurance plan, it doesn't focus on the what I call the four flat tires of the car. You know, it wants to align the tires and tune the engine. But why don't we address the fact that the car is driving one in the wrong direction often because there's a misalignment of incentives and two, it has four flat tires, which is largely how primary care is run how we help navigate people in the system, how we help people make behavioral changes, and how we deal with mental health. If we'll fill up those four tires, so I teach CEOs, don't take your budget that you're going to spend on healthcare and don't just spend it all on, you know, the typical which health plan that uses traditional deficit-based healthcare. You know, take your budget and divide it up. Spend a portion on that, catastrophic care or whatever, but spend a portion on better primary care and partner with primary care practices that do a good job and Invite them to come into your work site and actually spend a couple of days at the office and, and see patients there to make it even more convenient for your employees. You know, make sure there's a component of what you're spending your money on that's focusing on behavior. The whole idea of helping that bird hit the target and then addressing mental health and be proactive. Now, the problem with mental health is that people wait 10 years on average after mental health symptoms appear and almost 60% of people never get help. From a mental health pet. And so it's not about just when they finally reach out, do you have a good system, but how do you get people to reach out early? So doing things proactively and doing early intervention. You want to talk about this aspirational healthcare conference that you are working on, Daryl? I've been so excited to learn about the NUCA system of care up in Alaska because they truly are they're the only healthcare system that's won the Malcolm Baldrige Award twice. They're considered across the globe the most effective healthcare system. They do healthcare for far less with much better outcomes. It's what you want. So working with them right now on a conference for this next summer, July 14th and 15th, where we're going to focus on aspirational healthcare and highlight systems like the NUCA system. And, and there are others that have followed their example and are also doing some great things where it's all about get in front of the problem. Let's focus on helping the person change. Let's not just be a, a rock and a target. Let's actually engage change and let's build a healthcare system about keeping people healthy. And really what, in fact, it's NUCA system of care that, that came up with the term aspirational care, which I think is a great term instead of deficit-based healthcare, instead of healing a problem, why not avoid in the first place? Instead of treating a disease, why not keep the disease from happening? So we're putting on a conference in the summer with NUCA, where we're inviting health plans, employers, government, brokers, everyone that wants to get involved to just highlight and focus and draw attention to a better way to do healthcare, which is aspirational healthcare versus deficit-based. Instead of creating a sick care system to actually create a honest-to-goodness healthcare system. Right. Or a health system. Where the focus is on the person, the actual individual. How do you help that person achieve the greatest level of health and well-being instead of the focus being on the healthcare system and everybody just coming to be the benefactors of the system? Is there anything that I neglected to ask you that you want to talk about, Daryl? 
again, my passion is to put fences at the top of the cliff. And I think the more that uh, we as a country address the fact that healthcare is now reaching $4 trillion, which is close to 20% of our gross domestic product, it's the only industry in America that just keeps becoming a bigger percent of GDP. Every other industry has to get smaller to make room for this bulging healthcare system. We need to address it as a nation, as our primary priority, and where your focus is on creating health, not a focus on just having lots of people get treatments. Daryl Moon from Orion. Thank you so much for being on Relentless Health Value today. Thank you, Stacey. It's been a pleasure. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.